Welcome to the Seattle Public Library's podcasts of author readings and library events, a series of readings, performances, lectures, and discussions. Library podcasts are brought to you by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation. To learn more about our programs and podcasts, visit our website at www.spl.org. To learn how you can help the Library Foundation support the Seattle Public Library, go to foundation.spl.org. Hello. Thanks for coming tonight. Uh, my name is Andrea, and I'm a librarian here at the Seattle Public Library. Uh, I'd like to thank tonight Elliott Bay Books for uh, inviting us to host this reading and for selling books in the back. I'd like to thank the Seattle Public Library Foundation and the author series sponsor Gary Kunis and media sponsor the Seattle Times. We're so glad you found us this evening. Uh, We have a lot of author events throughout the year, which you can find at the events calendar on our website, which is spl.org. So we hope you'll find some more interesting things there. And now it's our pleasure to welcome Joe Baker to the library this evening. Ms. Baker was born in Lancashire and educated at Oxford University and Queen's University, Belfast. She is the author of five previous novels, including Longbourn, a national bestseller and New York Times notable book. She's here today to read from her new book, A Country Road, A Tree, which follows the life of young Irish writer and the military experience that forms him into a powerful writer. It's a novel that digs deep into the mind of an ordinary man to reveal what makes him tick. O Magazine called it an exquisitely crafted novel. Ms. Baker's reading will be followed by a short question and answer session, after which she will be signing books up here. And now, please join me in welcoming Joe Baker. It's lovely to be back here in Seattle. I came here once before for Longbourn, and I honestly didn't think I'd be back here again with another book. So thank you guys for having me back here again. I don't know how much crossover there is between my Longbourn audience and this book, but I can see that there's a bit of a difference because there's some guys in the audience tonight. This book is more or less the story of what um, Samuel Beckett got up to during the Second World War. Beckett's a writer I became fascinated by when I was doing my MA at Queen's in Belfast, um, Back in the, uh, well, it feels like the Neolithic now, but it was only the 1990s. What struck me about his work was, first of all, the characters, those strange kind of peripheral figures, broken and battered, um, inhabiting this desolate world and persecuted men. And alongside that, the difference between this late work and the early work, which to me and indeed to you know, a lot of readers feels very much under the shadow of James Joyce. The gap between those two things really niggled with me. What lay between those two things? Well, one thing that lies between them is his novel, What?, which is a strange hallucinatory piece that he wrote whilst on the run from the Gestapo. And I think anyone who can write a novel whilst on the run from the Gestapo, you know, hats off. But the late work is the stuff that we think of sort of instinctively as Beckettian, and it's the stuff that made him internationally famous, and it's the stuff that won him the Nobel Prize for Literature. And that's really what I wanted to arrive at in this novel, was sort of tracing the gap between those two uh, phases in his writing. Um, So I'm just going to read you two sections from this book. Um, The first one 
from the beginning? Well, it's not from the beginning. I think, you know, with any story, it makes a sense to start at the beginning. So I'm going to do what I always do and make things difficult for myself and start before the beginning, 20 years before the beginning, at the family home in Ireland, in Fox Rock, suburb of Dublin. And this is the spring of 1919, and this is a small boy climbing a tree. The tree stirred, and the sound of the needles was shh, shh, shh. The boy swung a knee over the branch, heaved himself up, and shifted round so that his legs dangled. The scent of the larch cleared his head so that everything seemed as sharp and clear as glass. He could still hear the faint sound of piano practice, but he could also see out across the fields from here. He could see for miles and miles, and the sky was wide open as a cat's yawn. He heard the side door of the house go, and then her calling out for him, sing-song, It's time! He chewed his lip and stayed put. The door propped open, he could hear more distinctly the ripple of music, a stumble, and the phrase caught and begun again. Frank was trying hard to get it right. He, though, would not oblige. With her watching, he couldn't lose himself while playing, and if he couldn't lose himself, then what was the point of playing at all? I'm waiting. He didn't move. She gave out a sigh, and the door clacked shut behind her, and she came down the step out into the garden looking for him. He dug at a scale of bark with a thumbnail. Where have you got to now, you wee skitter? But it was herself that she was talking to as she marched through the garden, searching him out. He shuffled in against the trunk, wrapped an arm tight around it. He watched her pass under his dangling tennis shoes, the white dividing line of the parting in her hair, her skirt snapping out with her stride. Her feet moved like darting arrows pointing the way, the wrong way, but she wasn't going to give up on it. If she were to stop and plant her feet and crane her head back, that would be that. But it didn't cross her mind. He simply couldn't be where he was not allowed to be. Up there, he'd climbed out of her imagining. The music ended. Frank had finished his piece. He was waiting to be excused. And she was out across the lawns now, and there was just the spiral stare of large branches down towards the brown earth, the mat of fallen needles, and the sound of her voice calling again and fading round the far side of the house. He waited till he heard her return, and then the click and clack as she opened the side door and shut it behind her. A moment later, and the music started up again. Poor old Frank. He'd been lumbered with it. Frank was paying for his brother's escape. He would pay for it too, he knew, and in spades when she found him, his mother had a strong arm. But for now, he had disappeared and it was a miracle. He shuffled forwards on the bow, tweaking the legs of his shorts down, one and then the other between the rough bark and the tender backs of knees. Gravity tugged at him now, teased at his core, making it lurch and swoop. A bird was singing somewhere, pouring its song up and out into the Easter air. He sucked in a breath. It tasted of sap and of spring and of his rubbery tennis shoes. He let go of the branch. He let go of the trunk. He lifted his arms and spread them wide. The paws on the cusp, the brink. He dived out into the empty air. Gravity snatched him, air stuffed his mouth and ballooned his shirt and his shorts and pummeled him and it was stacked with branches and they smacked and scurried past. Twigs whipped his cheeks and legs and arms and belly and tore at his shirt. The ground slammed up. It knocked the breath out of him, knocked the light out of him, made him still. He lay, his cheek on hard earth. No breath, empty, red and pulsing, and no breath. Gaping, but no breath. Then in front of his eyes, the dust stirred and the fallen needles shifted. He dragged in a lump of air and heaved it down him, then pushed it out again. It hurt. He felt to a pulse in his hand, a burn on his thigh. He noticed these particular 
discomforts, alongside the tenderness of bruised ribs and the hard weight of the earth pushing up against him. He creaked up onto hands and knees as his breath became normal again. Then he sat back on his heels and brushed the needles off his palms. After a moment, he twisted himself round to stretch out his legs. He considered the scratch across the ball of his thumb, which was not bad after all, and another on his thigh, which wasn't bleeding much, and the pink bold patch where an old scab had come off a knee. He licked the ooze off a hand. He brushed down his shins and tied a trailing lace. Then he eased himself upright, unfolding like a deck chair, all angles and joints. He tugged his shorts straight, so they more or less covered up the scratch on his leg, so she wouldn't notice that. His head swam, just a bit, but he was all right. He looked over to the house. The window stared straight back at him. The music laboured on. She must be standing over the piano, her stare flicking from Frank's hands to the score, the score to his hands, making sure that Frank, at least, was going to get something right. And knowing the piece... He knew he had a good while before Frank would be done with it. He glanced up through the helix of branches to the sky, where the clouds bundled and tore towards the mountains from the sea. On the lowest branch near the trunk, the bark was polished smooth with the wear of his own hands. He reached for it, grasped it in his stinging palms, and heaved himself up till his elbows locked and his belly was pressed against the bow. Then he swung his right knee over the scaly bark, making the blood bead again. He stretched a hand up for the next branch, where it hung just above his head. He began again to climb. This time, this time, this time he would skim up to join the clouds. This time he would fly. And that is something that Beckett, as a young fella, a young wee lad, used to do. There's some debate, critically, as to whether he just enjoyed the experience of falling or whether he thought that one day he would fly. And I think often as children, I certainly used to think that one day I would be able to fly. I never quite managed it. Um, But it is... And he used to get really badly thrashed for doing it. (laughs) It's a funny practice, isn't it, really, to, to batter a child for having hurt itself. But it's indeed what used to happen. The next piece I'm going to read to you, and the second and last piece, in fact, is from, as we can see, just for a quick demonstration, towards the middle of the book... Again, this is challenging because I'm going to have to kind of catch you up on a bit of the story because the last time we saw him, it was uh, 1919, and at this point now we are a good bit further on. So if we can think of this as maybe, you know, previously on A Country Road, A Tree, I'll catch you up a bit. So for those of you who don't already know, when the war broke out, the series of declarations that added up to war in Europe, Beckett was in Ireland visiting his mother, He'd been living in Paris, but he was at home for a while. Now, he could have stayed there. Ireland was to remain neutral throughout, and he could have sat out the war comfortably, relatively comfortably, in Ireland. Instead, he chose the most difficult option, which was to get back to France. Actually, getting there was difficult because travel was, um, uh, was already snarled up immediately by the declarations of war. He wanted to be with his friends, he wanted to be in Paris, and he wanted to be with Suzanne, his partner. But at first, all that was was his presence there. He was passively there, getting by, dealing with administrative niggles. He was like sans papier for a while, and he had to get his papers sorted out. But it was really just day-to-day existence. And then things get more difficult. There are curbs on freedoms. Rationing is imposed and then becomes stricter. 
Um, there are certain areas that are reserved only for the occupiers and, and uh, other people can't use them. Uh, food becomes res- sort of subsistence levels. People are really struggling and acts of resistance are happening. Some of these are fairly sort of interesting and creative, like flyering, stickering, taking the piss, really, out of the Germans. And then some of them are violent. And as a response to some of this violent resistance, the Germans take hostages. And this is what became known as, and forgive my wobbly French, le grand rafle, the great roundup that was done in the Jewish quarters. They rounded up Jewish men from these areas. Just men was was what was touted, but they only did it in the Jewish quarters. So they're held in a place called Drancy. And the idea is that if there is more resistance, they can be executed. Drancy is a dreadful place. It's an unfinished housing project towards the edge of Paris that's been kind of ringed around with barbed wire. Think sort of concrete and barbed wire, basically. And the rations there are even lower. People are living on soup, cabbage soup, that kind of thing. People get sick. Amongst the people who were rounded up and put in Drancy was Beckett's old friend, Paul Leon. And Paul Leon was a journalist and one of the Joyce Circle, lovely, gentle, creative man. He was rounded up, he was interned, he was tortured. When Beckett finds out about this, he goes to see Paul's wife, Lucy. Lucy's in a terrible state, but she hears that she can get a food parcel to Paul. It's the only thing she can do is get a food parcel to him. But how do you make a food parcel when nobody's got anything to spare at all? Everyone's already on subsistence rations. And so Beckett gives his subsistence rations away in what I think is the first of a, well, the second, really, of a series of extraordinary moral decisions. What I'm going to read to you is the aftermath of that decision and the conversation that follows it. And then uh, the person he's talking to in that instance is Suzanne. And then later, another character is going to appear, and that's Alfie, Alfred Perron, who is an old friend, another old friend. Beckett had this extraordinary talent for friendship. So I'm just going to read you a few pages of that, and then we're done. So this is Suzanne. Here's something you never see anymore, she says. He rolls his head round on the pillow to look at her, eyebrows raised. Spoiled fruit, she says. He studies her profile, the soft nap of her skin. Despite the lines at her eyes, there's still something of the girl about her, even now, even in the middle of all this, with her hair all fallen anyhow, and her gaze vague and turned towards the ceiling and her thoughts freewheeling and ravenous. He wets cracked lips. True. Or vegetables. He nods. Because you'd see it all the time, wouldn't you, on a market day? There'd be bruised apples rolled off a barrow. Or oranges on the cobbles burst open, wasps on them. Kids would kick them around. Sometimes you'd see an old fellow. A clochard would be picking them up, stuffing them in his pockets. Fallen fruit, all bruised and gritty. I remember. But you never see that anymore. No. Nor the tramps, for that matter. No. They're all gone too. She considers this a moment. The days when you could pick up an orange off the street. Can you imagine? God, I'd love an orange even if I had to fight the wasps for it. Or the tramps. She smiles, her teeth show, her gums are pale. A bad orange is really bad, though, he says. I'd take a bad apple over a bad orange any day. Depends how bad. A long pause in which both of them consider the relative merits of spoiled fruit. Then, no one feeds the pigeons anymore. 
One might if one thought it would get one close enough to catch it. A moment passes and then she says, pigeon pie. I could eat a pigeon pie, couldn't you? With potatoes in it and carrots. She still stares up at the ceiling, her lips compress, her chin crumples. Potatoes aren't rationed yet, he says. But you can't get hold of them anyway. Or carrots, or radishes, or turnips, they're not rationed. I know, a silence. It will be all right, he says. She doesn't roll her eyes, but she can't stop herself from expelling a huff of breath, almost a sigh, and twisting her head round on the pillow to give him a long look. I'm not that bothered anyway, he says. He wets his lips again. There's a sharp catch on the tongue there and a taste of blood where the skin has split. His voice is dry and sounds dusty when he speaks. I don't expect you just because I... She does roll her eyes now, heaves up onto an elbow, the better to glare at him. That's not how it works, she says. Of course that's not how it works. You know that. I'm not going to stuff myself with bread while all you've got to eat is turnips. After a moment, he says, Lucy was desperate. She blinks, sighs, flops back down on her pillow. I know. Then she says, I keep thinking of omelettes. What a give for a mushroom omelette. The kind where the mushrooms are cooked almost black and there's that inky juice seeping out of it and the eggs are a bit crisp on the outside but still soft and oozy in the middle. You might get the mushrooms if you were lucky but where would you get the eggs for it now? A gorgonzola sandwich, he says. She nods keenly, as though this is a particularly insightful observation. After a moment, she says, we are in real trouble now, you know. But what else could I do? She parts her lips, is going to speak, but there are, because there are a few valid responses to this. But then he starts to cough and doesn't stop. He heaves himself up away from her, his legs swung over the side of the bed, and he's curled over like a sea, his backbone a line of knuckles, his belly hollow and his chest heaving. His scar slides and strains over his ribs. It's livid against his white skin. Suzanne fumbles him a handkerchief and shifts round next to him, her hand on his back. He clutches the handkerchief to his lips. Gradually, the fit subsides and he manages a shaking breath. He wipes his eyes. Sorry, it's all right. I just need a cigarette. She rubs his back. I know, they don't have any cigarettes. I'll make you a cup of tea. Have we got any tea? I think we've got a little left. Thank you. Rest. He eases himself back down as she gets up off the bed. She pads her way down to the tiny kitchen and lifts tins from the cupboard and puts the water onto heat. He lies and looks up at the ceiling, his breath raw. The way it nails one to one's body, this dearth. A battle to think about anything at all beyond the discomforts of the flesh. A battle to do anything more than attempt to deal with its demands, which is presumably intentional. A canny weapon, hunger, the way it turns one in upon oneself. It'll get better, Suzanne says. She hands him a cup of pale and milkless liquid. He shifts up on his pillows to take it from her. Shamrock tea, he says. How's that? It's got three leaves in it, she smiles. What you're doing, she says, for the Leons. I am proud of you. He looks up at her. She strokes his shoulder, her hand cold over goose flesh, her expression grave. But remember, you, yourself, you matter too. The plane leaves are starting to turn and so are the maples and a leaf drifts down because nobody has told the trees that the world has ended. The children's Monday afternoon voices twine into a thread as they walk in their shabby trails from school, ink-stained and bedraggled, their satchels swinging in the low September sun because whatever children are used to is how things ought to be. 
Today, with its golden sun and its crisp air, brings thoughts of beginnings, of pencil shavings in new leather and ink on a fresh page. And this is cruel, because even if you could manage somehow not to notice, if you could skim over the posters and assure yourself they only advertise nightclubs and radio sets and soap, if you took off your glasses so that the boarded shop fronts were just a blur and the outrages daubed there were rendered soft and indistinct, and if you could step through the empty spaces on the street where there should be actual people and do it without shivering, then all might seem almost to be well and fresh and hopeful, but the tumour's already threaded in the flesh. It taints the blood. It poisons everything. He taps lightly on the peron's door. Alfie, good afternoon. What's wrong? Where to start? He jerks his head. Come for a drink. Alfie glances back into the apartment, calls out to his wife, back in a few instants and replies, heard, that the words are indistinct. Alfie grabs a jacket and ushers him out. They walk briskly. They talk about the new academic year and some of the boys Alfie's teaching because, of course, mathematics and French and philosophy all still go on, just as the leaves turn and fall and the earth spins round the sun. There are, of course, changes to the curriculum. Books are disappearing from the library. At the corner cafe, they sit on the terrace. They lean in, heads together. The sun catches in their beer. It glows golden cloudy. Do you know about Paul? Alfie glances round the nearby tables. Yes, he says, I heard. The idea of him, that civil, decent man, the very idea, I know. I wanted to find out what I can do. For Paul, Alfie says. Well, maybe an appeal if he is unwell, perhaps his wife. He sips, he places the glass back on the table. He resists the compulsion to down the beer in one go. The urge is for calories, not alcohol. His hand shakes with it. He says, actually, I wondered what I can do at all. I thought you might be able to help me. Alfie lifts his glass, drinks, and sets the beer back down again. When he speaks next, it is in a dimmer tone. Why would you think that I would know? A bead of water runs through the condensation on his glass like a ladder in a stocking. I had rather gathered... I was under the impression that you... He wafts away the ineffectual words. I'm just sitting on my hands here. Tell me how I can help. Alfie looks off along the street, then down at his glass. There's someone you need to meet. He waves to the waiter, gets out his wallet. These are on me. Alfie teases out a 500-franc note and tucks it into the bill. His fingertips linger longer than necessary. He taps twice drawing attention to the banknote and the red ink printed on it. Somebody has typed three words onto the note. They are clear and unequivocal, and as the note circulates, the words will pass from hand to hand, day after day, for weeks and months to come. Reminding, reiterating, asserting, saying what simply must be said and yet cannot. The words are, vive la France. He looks up, eyes widening. Alfie's expression is more than usually innocent. He wears that disarming half-smile of his. Petty vandals, he shrugs. What can one do? One has to pass it on. One can't simply throw 500 francs away. And I'll leave it there, just where the course of his life changes and the induction into the resistance begins. And if you have any questions, be more than happy to try and answer them. And if you don't, well, you do. (laughs) But I'm okay with that too. Are you done writing about Samuel Beckett? Um, For the time being, yes, I am.
Yes. I have a bit of a butterfly mind. I mean, Longbourn was my conversation with Austin. This is my conversation with himself. I know, yes. Actually, Beckett was quite a big Austin fan, um, interestingly. And she's a very sparing writer, interestingly, or at least interestingly for me. And yes, I'm on to something completely else now. No, no, though I have been asked to write a sort of one of those sort of reflecting books, but I've never taken a commission before, so I'm sort of humming and hawing about, about that. But I'm, I'm on with another project. I'm sort of about 20,000 words into a new novel. And some of them are okay, some of those 20,000 words. <laughs> but the main thing is to get some written down. I loved the book Thank very you. much. And I, I particularly loved the way that you wrote it without identifying who you were writing about. Yeah. And I thought about it last week because um, Seattle Reads author was here, Karen Joy Fowler, and, mm. and her book, um, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves yeah. in the Hardback, you didn't know until a certain point in the book what um, something was, you know, what, what the kind of the, the important part of the book. Mm. And she commented that uh, when the paperback came out, and I had read it in the original mm. hardback, when the paperback came out on the back of it, it revealed who, um, yeah. you know, the, the story. Yeah. So yeah. I, I wondered when I was reading this yeah. if anything like that was in your mind, but then all of the reviews I read before I bought the book indicated that it was Beckett. Yeah. I liked the fact that I didn't consciously wasn't thinking it was him yeah. as I read it because I, I'm a huge admirer of his work, but it just took me more into his life, I think. Mm. Um, but I wondered if you had any, uh, if there was a reason why if you could share what that reason was why you chose to use that wonderful style. Thank you. Those spoilers that you have no control over. It wasn't that I was intending to sort of withhold anything from anybody. I wanted the story to function. I'm just checking all the little bits of text on this to see if it says his name. Yes, it does on this version. It doesn't on the UK version, on the um, sort of surrounding texts. It wasn't an attempt to sort of t to have a big reveal or withhold anything from the reader. It was... First of all, I wanted to tell a story. And if the story would work, we don't need to know who that man... You know, I wanted it to work as a story in its own right for anyone who hadn't read any Beckett, as well as people who had read Beckett. So I wanted it to sort of work as a kind of literary reflection, but also a yarn, a good story, a sort of wartime adventure. In some ways, withholding the name helps enable the story side of things to some degree. But it was actually... That's a sort of unintended consequence. I wasn't aware of that I was, as I was making the decision not to use his name. I mean, he does have a text of his own called The Unnameable, which it does have um, an unnamed hero, so it, or central character. No one's very heroic, I suppose. But it's a nod to that, to some degree, in that he's sort of like the unnameable figure within this text. But it's also that when I was writing it in early drafts, I was trying things like, Sam said this and Sam did that and blah, blah, blah. And I felt completely closed off from it and very shy, very sort of apprehensive. I couldn't get close enough. And once his name was gone, it all just kind of opened up and freed up. And I thought, well, I'll have a go and see if I can write it in a third person without using a name. Is that even possible? You know, is that going to feel really contrived? Are there going to be conversations where, you know, it feels really contrived to, you know, if you've got more than one male speaking and he said this and he said that, is it still going to work? 
And I think I think I, I got it so that it's not glaring at you that I've had to... There's not much sort of prestidigitation going on to make it work. It seemed to sort of flow nicely, I felt, once his name was gone. So it was a kind of practical decision as a writer to get the draft done by lifting his name out and seeing what happened. And it did just seem to sort of come come awake then when I did that. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, a lot of books these days seem to want to revisit classics or old stories that we've mm. heard before, mostly in a sort of prequel or sequel capacity, mm. like Death Comes to Pemberley. But with Longbourn, you didn't really continue the story. You just kind of parallel yeah. storied with some people we probably didn't see at all in mm. the original. Mm. Um, so I just wondered if you could talk about this sort of trend in, in books right now where we're revisiting old mm. classics. I came to think of, of Longbourn as being a subquel. You know, it's not a prequel, it's not a sequel, it's what's going on underneath, so it's a subquel. Um, and those characters are all these sort of presences, these ghostly presences in that text. And there are quite a lot of these books. I mean, there's, I think there's a Ahab's wife, isn't there? I quite like to write one that takes the point of view of the whale in that story. I think that would be fun. Quite simple as well, just all vowel sounds, really. I, th- I mean, I, d- I think it's... I mean, these are extraordinary books, and we grow up with them, and they take us through our difficult teenage years and stuff like that. And so we have this kind of creative and passionate relationship with them and and want for me anyway and I suppose I'm the only one I can really speak for I wanted to be able to inhabit Austin's world in a way that felt real for me given given my class background one grandma worked as a servant the other grandma worked barefoot in a cotton mill she wasn't barefoot because she couldn't afford shoes it was just the processes meant there was lots of water so it just ruined her shoes so they all worked barefoot and so I don't feel like I could ever be Lizzie Bennett you know so it was about sort of negotiating a way into Austin that felt real for me. And I think probably it's something like that that most authors are doing. Sometimes they are very, there are cynical books written that are written to generate interest, you know, and because of an existing text that's already well known. But I think a lot of these books are incredibly honest and open and sincere responses to books that fascinate a a writer. And I think, you know, they are increasing in number partly because time is passing and we've got more books to reflect on. But it's also, I mean, even if you think about something like Ulysses, Joyce's own Ulysses, that's a parallel text to the Odyssey. So, you know, these things are there, I think, possibly from very early days, but of, well, that's not the very early days of the novel, but, you know, it's, it's something that is probably increasing, yeah, as the number of books increase. <laughs> Am I making any sense at all? Did I mention that I'm really badly jet-lagged? <laughs> Was that anything like an answer to your question? Okay. Can we leave it there? <laughs> Sorry, thank you. Hi. I was wondering what was your research approach for this? Did you mostly use biographies, or how much did you rely on his works versus other sources? It was a um, mixture, and I also spoke to a number of people who are experts in the field as well. So it really it began... Well, it's very hard to say where it began, because it kind of began in about 1995 or something like that with that question about Beckett and the late work and the early work. I... I looked at the biographies and started sort of working out what and where and who and when, and then sort of reading back a bit from the the texts as well, 
Um, so I returned to, to those. And also, so that's for the sort of the actual specifically to, to Beckett stuff. And then more for the period reading memoir and fiction, sort of resistance memoirs and um, wartime memoirs. And I think fiction like Suite Francaise and, and those kinds of books, where you can get some really good practical detail, I find. Anyway, fiction that's written in the period sometimes supplies detail that would be otherwise quite hard to get hold of. And also pottering around Paris a wee bit. And we uh, took the train down to the south of France and went... It was really hard, you know, tough stuff to do. But um, following the same route, but actually sitting on a TGV rather than, you know, hiding out from and getting passers to get us across the border. Because uh, there's no border, obviously. And we went to, to Roussillon, which is the, the little tiny town that they hid out in during that sort of latter phase of the war. And it's an astonishing place. I don't know if anyone's ever been. But it's sort of mostly limestone landscape all round. And then there's this one little patch of red ochre, which they mine there. So the village is kind of like on this kind of red, blood red, seamed hillside that's all been sort of cut away. And it's really, really striking. So it was a kind of combination of, um, of, of those different kind of approaches. And I also really very unintentionally but cleverly got into Beckett's sort of sense of failing as a writer by having like four novels that disappeared without trace mm-hmm. before I went on to, <laughs> to, to write Longbourn. So I think that helped me to some degree sort of tune into that wavelength of despair. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, hi. Um, Hello. Did you find that Waiting for Godot was based on the dialogue uh, between Beckett and Suzanne that I've read about, or do you have any thoughts on that stuff? That's the theory that comes out of Deirdre Bear's biography, isn't it? Right. I think that's probably a bit literal. I think usually... I think this period and that experience massively influential on Godot, and particularly when you realise that in an early draft, the two characters weren't called Vladimir and Estragon, but I, f- I forget what the exact names were, but they were very identifiably Jewish names. Levi and... There you go. Yeah. yeah. So I th- but I also know that sort of influence isn't ever that sort of straightforward. It's never that linear. Lots of stuff comes in and informs things, and you're not as in charge of it as that would suggest, of sort of like remembering and taking stuff right. down. right. I think. Any other questions? No. Great, then let's do a signing. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. This podcast was presented by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation and made possible by your contributions to the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>